This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik. According to the Alzheimer's Disease Foundation Malaysia, by 2050, the number of older adults in Malaysia living with dementia will rise to 825,000. Now, Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia, usually accounting for 60 to 70% of dementia cases. And uh, despite many advancements in medicine, there is still no cure for Alzheimer's disease and many people living with this condition are cared for by family members, usually spouses or adult children being the primary caregivers. So on today's show, we want to discuss um, what it looks like when we're talking about caring for the individual with Alzheimer's as well as for the caregivers. What challenges do caregivers face? How does the disease progression affect the individual? What kind of challenges um, should caregivers expect? Joining me for this conversation, consultant neurologist, Dr. Sherini Bazir Ahmad and consultant psychiatrist Dr. Wan Izwin Wan Hassan. Dr. Sherini and Dr. Izwin, how are the both of you today? Thank you so much for speaking to me. Oh, we're great. Thank you. And yes, thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's been really lovely to come and uh, discuss uh, this very important topic. Mm-hmm. And we're very grateful to be able to educate the um, community as well as the general public. Absolutely. And we do want to shine that light on uh, perhaps um, a group of people who are uh, often hidden out of sight, right? The caregivers, the immense efforts that they contribute and how to better support them. But Dr. Srini, a refresher, I guess, it's always important to understand what we are discussing. What is Alzheimer's? Uh, What is that big umbrella of dementia? And how do these conditions develop in someone's brain? Okay, um, so yeah, a, a lot of time people get confused between the terms of Alzheimer's and dementia and it's sort of usually used interchangeably. But uh, dementia is not really a single disease. Dementia is more of a collective symptoms um, of uh, several diseases that may affect uh, your memory, your word findings, language skills, problem solving. It can affect your mood, behaviour, feelings, your motor skill to a point that um, these symptoms can actually affect uh, your day-to-day living, the function of your day-to-day living. So this is essentially what um, dementia means. Um, There are many different types of dementia and uh, one of them is Alzheimer's disease, as you rightly mentioned earlier. And uh, Alzheimer's disease is the commonest type of dementia, accounting to probably about 60 to 80% causes of dementia overall. And um, Alzheimer's disease usually are diagnosed in people who are in the elderly group. Um, But we do now see patients having uh, Alzheimer's disease or diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease much younger than the um, 80 years old. And um, there's a small group of patients, although this is rare, uh, but we do have a small number of uh, patients who are diagnosed with young onset Alzheimer's, which is the symptoms of Alzheimer's uh, was diagnosed less at the age of less than 50 years old. 
So apart from Alzheimer's, there are other types of dementia. Maybe our listeners are familiar with other types of dementia, such as frontotemporal lobe dementia, dementia of Lewy body, there's vascular dementia. And also there are um, dementias due to other chronic neurological disease like Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, and, all, and so forth. Um, now the question on how does Alzheimer's happen? Well, this is a good question because I think we are still looking at the um, exact cause of Alzheimer's disease, why certain people develop Alzheimer's disease. But what researchers have found is that when they do a post-mortem study on the brain of people with Alzheimer's disease, they found that there is this abnormal accumulation of uh, protein within the cells of the brain and outside the cells of the brains. Um, so these are called the amyloid beta protein and also um, these uh, tau tangles or tau protein. These abnormal proteins, um, what do they do? They actually damages the brain cells. And what happened is that in our brain, we have neurons that talk to each other. And unfortunately, these proteins are toxic to the brain and it damages these neurons. And what happened over time, these neurons um, st stop talking to each other and uh, over time they die off. And this is reflected by what we see in our patients as well. So from beginning of their symptoms of mild cognitive decline, you know, they probably started off with just mild memory impairment. It sort of progressed to involve other domains of the brain. <clears throat> and eventually they become totally dependent on their caregivers. Um, and when we actually look at their brain on, uh, on MRI, for example, we can see that over time, the, the brain started to shrink. And this is reflected by this neuronal degeneration. And so this is causing the brain to, over time, start to shrink on the scans. Um, the question is, where does this protein come from, right? So it's like, who will get it? Um, we, we know there's, there are risk factors. So there are modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. So aging is one of them. So we know that aging can actually lead to uh, someone developing abnormal protein causing like Alzheimer's disease. But there are other risk factors such as uh, cardiovascular risk factors. So if you have um, chronic or uncontrolled uh, hypertension, you're a chronic smoker, uh, you have poorly controlled diabetes, high cholesterol, uh, obesity, you, you, you lead quite an unhealthy lifestyle, um, this can lead lead to uh, Alzheimer's disease as well. The most commonest question that we've been asked in clinic is that um, if I have a family members with Alzheimer's, will I get Alzheimer's disease? Now, this is not entirely true, like that you will definitely get Alzheimer's disease. It's just, it's putting you at higher risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. For example, if you have a first degree relatives with Alzheimer's disease, this put your risk maybe four times higher than other people in the normal population. If two people in your first degree relatives have Alzheimer's, then maybe eight times higher. But there's also some genes that actually causes Alzheimer's disease. So if you have these genes, then your chances of having Alzheimer's, especially young onset Alzheimer's, is even higher. Um, so these are the you know, amyloid precursor genes, presenilin 1 and 2. And if you actually car carry any mutation of the um, APOE or apolipoprotein E. So these are some of the risk factors that may contribute whether you are at high risk of developing Alzheimer's disease later on in life. Yeah. Mm. Is that progression, that progressive damage to the neurons inevitable? And um, what 
would one expect in terms of uh, changes to their behaviours as well as their ability to function as the mm. disease progresses? I think once you've has the, you have these uh, abnormal proteins accumulated in the brain, then uh, the co- causative effect of this is actually neuronal damage. Um, I think the whether we can stop this progression of the neuronal damage, this is what we are currently looking for in terms of uh, modifiable, th- uh, you know, disease-modifying therapy. Um, but what do they look like? Um, what do Alzheimer's, how does Alzheimer's patient behave, right? So we actually classify them into the beginning stage of Alzheimer's, so the mild, moderate, then severe to very severe. So people with milder uh, disease, um, the thing about uh, dementia is that it may affect different types of the brain. But in Alzheimer's disease, the first area of the brain that's uh, affected is usually the temporal lobe. The temporal lobe is one of the lobes in the brain, um, specifically the hippocampus. So this area of the brain, I usually explain to my patient as this is like your RAM in the computer, you know. So you want to convert your memory into long-term memory. So the problem is that the problem is actually in your RAM. So if you cannot store memory into the RAM, it's very difficult for you to store this into your hard drive to make it as your long-term memory. So the problem is actually at the RAM, at the hippocampus. So Patients with Alzheimer's have problem remembering things, recalling things. They may ask repetitive questions over and over again because they couldn't store this um, short-term memory. And on top of that, this area also control your attention. So if you have poor attention, it makes it even more difficult for you to remember things. So that will be your initial stage. Um, there's also uh, some other um you know, domains that can be affected, for example, their emotions, sleeping problems, all might start quite early on in the disease. And later on, as the disease progresses, other areas of the brains get affected as well. And this would include their, you know, higher functioning skills such as planning, uh, critical thinking, um, doing complex tasks. I'll give you an example, like cooking. Cooking is not an easy task because first, there's a lot of planning involved. You need to plan of going to the grocery, what what stuff to buy, and then you have to plan how you're going to prepare um, before you cook, and then the cooking and the plating. So patients with Alzheimer's have difficulties following these sequences, and they may also have issues with remembering like or, or dealing with numbers. So they may have problems doing their finances, their taxes, and all that. So this is when family members start noticing something is not right with uh, with my 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 father or my mother, that kind of thing. Then. After that, uh, the disease progress further, they become even more relying on uh, uh, their caregivers because they they forgot how to look after themselves. They can't uh, maintain self-hygiene. Simple things like brushing their hair or brushing their teeth, they may have trouble doing that. And the other thing is the change in their sleep-wake cycle. This is something that I hear a lot from um, uh, the family members coming to my clinic. They don't sleep at night because their sleep-wake cycle is affected. So when people are all trying to sleep, they will be wide awake. They can be pleasantly confused or they can be aggressive and agitated. And this is when you start getting your um, psychiatrist colleague to to help you to manage this kind of symptoms. And eventually, the disease further progressed to a point where they totally lost their ability to function. They become bedbound. They lose their emotional, um, mental and social connection with you. It's like 
your your loved one is there, but their mind is no longer there with you. And this is when other complications start to kick in because um, they become malnourished, they get recurrent infections, they come to the hospital, multiple hospital admissions, to a point where the last straw of infection, they can't survive it and eventually pass on. So, uh, so, Dr. Iswin, if I could bring you in very briefly now, um, what Dr. Sharini has described is is so vast, is so profound on the individual and on the whole family and the community around them. And at the same time, ageing is a non-modifiable risk factor and we know we're living in an ageing population. So, Dr. Iswin, what is the impact of increasing rates of Alzheimer's on our society as a whole? So, um, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, the rate of Alzheimer's disease will only increase as the population increase. So, according to the latest statistics, um, the, um, in Malaysia, we'll probably observe that 15%, of the population will be above 65 by 2050. So, we are going to, um, we are going to become an aging society basically. And I think we need to start putting in the um, appropriate steps and plans properly in order to manage that. And in terms of the impact of Alzheimer's on society, um, the impact is not just on the person that suffers from Alzheimer's. We've got to remember it as a um, you know, in a wider context. So the, the major impact is going to be most likely to be the caregiver. Uh, the caregiver and the caregiver is, of course, a member of society, and the caregiver may um, necessarily, may, you know, may not necessarily be able to look after this person on their own. Um, so, in terms of uh, caregiver burden, caregiver stress, you know, we're looking, you know, we're hearing stories of more and more caregivers having to give up work, for example. So that is a loss of productivity. That is a loss of, um, you know, um, economy for the country as caregivers have to quit work to look after their parents who suffer from Alzheimer's or any form of dementia who require support in all activities of daily living. Um, there's also the um, impact in terms of the mental health um, effects of being a caregiver, as well as the mental health effects of the person with Alzheimer's. You know, I see it quite commonly in my clinic, a person with Alzheimer's disease uh, or any form of dementia will often have a comorbid depression. They may have hallucinations, they may have psychosis, um, they may stop eating and drinking. So things that cause quite significant concern to the caregiver. And they are then again, not only burdened by the cognitive difficulties that they have to face looking after a person with Alzheimer's, but also the mental health effects. And this in turn will have a mental health effect, of course, on the caregiver. They may become burnt out. They may become depressed, they may become anxious, um, they may stop participating in social events. They don't see their friends, um, they don't visit their relatives anymore. Um, and, and this will have a knock-on effect, uh, you know, to the, to, the, to the wider society. You know, society will start to lose not just one person, but maybe two or maybe even more, um, you know, as a result of Alzheimer's. So it's, you know, it's got quite a lot of knock-on effect, um, you know, Alzheimer's to society. 
Mm. So as we expand on the conversation a little later, I guess we want to look at then how to support caregivers so that we can mitigate uh, these effects. But we'll go for a quick break first and we'll come back to continue the conversation with Dr. Shirini Bazir Ahmad, consultant neurologist, and Dr. Wan Izwin Wan Hassan, consultant psychiatrist. We're discussing Alzheimer's disease today, how to care for the individual as well as the caregiver. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shawik. Joining me on Zoom today, consultant neurologist Dr. Sharini Bazir Ahmad and consultant psychiatrist Dr. Wan Izwin Wan Hassan. We're looking at Alzheimer's disease today. Not only what's happening in the brain uh, when the disease develops, but how it affects the individual's daily lives and how it affects their caregivers as well. And hence, you know, these two perspectives um, that we have uh, on the show today. Um, we've, we've talked about um, very, very um, comprehensively um, how Alzheimer's progresses, um, what are the changes happening in the brain and uh, what then happens um, as the disease progresses in the individual. Um, and Dr. Shrini, you mentioned, uh, you gave a little teaser of um, what treatment would try to achieve and you mentioned disease-modifying therapy. So um, what what is that big picture of treating Alzheimer's disease can you do anything to reverse its progression? Um, what can you be achieved? Okay, thank you. Um, so currently, what's the state of the treatment for Alzheimer's disease? Um, we do not have a cure at the moment for Alzheimer's disease. And the treatment that we have in the market right now, um, especially in Malaysia, um, we do have medications that can slow down the progress of uh, the disease. So for those listeners, um, you might be familiar with um, certain drugs such as, you know, um, donepazil. Uh, we have uh, rivastigmine um, or galantamine. Um, so these are the drugs, what we call cholinesterase inhibitors. So this helps to uh, slows down the, the process of um, progression of cognitive decline. But uh, once the patient uh, achieve like or progress towards um, moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease, these medications might lose their efficacy or you may have to add on a different drug. Um, one of them, uh, one, uh, the, the drug that is in the market at the moment is called Momentin. And um, these um, momentum sometimes can be used on its own or in combination with the cholinesterase uh, inhibitors or all the three drugs that I've mentioned earlier. So these are the drugs that our patients are familiar with and family members are familiar with. But this is medication. When we talk about treating Alzheimer's, it's not just medication. We have to talk, think about you know, the behavioral, psychological treatment and the neurocognitive aspect of things, which I think Dr. Wan Iswin can help me with that later on. Um, now, the question is, is there a drug that can um, stop this progression of disease or reverse it? Um, these are what we call disease-modifying drugs. Of course, there's a lot of uh, research going on at the moment, but the currently the latest drug in the market that we have um, is what we call monoclonal antibodies. And how this works is it works against the amyloid protein, so trying to clear these abnormal protein depositions uh, in the brain. Um, and two of the drugs in the market that we have now is aducanumab and also lecanemab. 
Uh, and lecanemab is the one that actually received um, full uh, FDA approval. In the latest results from lecanemab, they found that people who received this drug, um, they found there is a reduction in the rate of cognitive decline over the 18 months period of the study compared to those who did not receive the drug, so the placebo. And the, the other interesting uh, finding in this study is that they found that when they do serial brain imaging, which is a PET scan, and this is a special scan looking at the protein depositions in the brain, this abnormal amyloid protein, they found that over time, um, there is a reduction in the amount of amyloid protein in the brain. So this is quite a breakthrough study. Um, so the question now uh, is that um, what is the long-term effect uh, what is the long-term efficacy of this drug? What is the sustainability of this drug? Will we be able to stop the amyloid deposition completely? How long do we have to be on this drug? And uh, uh, what happens if we stop this drug? Uh, all these questions are still left unanswered. It's still very new in the market at the moment. Um, so we hope that there will be something that can actually stop this amyloid from uh, continuing, uh, you know, uh, accumulating in the brain. The, the thing about starting this drug is that we want to start this drug early. So we no longer want to talk about, you know, moderate to severe Alzheimer. We want to actually detect patients much early on in the stage of, you know, probably at the stage of mild Alzheimer. Or there's another term that we use, what we call mild cognitive impairment or MCI. So what is mild cognitive impairment? I'm starting to see more and more patients coming to clinic with uh, what looks like MCI. This is when you have the normal ordinary people doing their ordinary job, but they start forgetting things more than usual. I mean, all of us will, you know, somehow or rather misplace things, right? Our car keys, our phones, our wallet. But this is a bit more than that. And it's, it's unusual for their behavior. And this is not because of stress or other compounding factors. So these are the patients where they have mild memory impairment, but it, it's not severe enough to affect their daily living. So they can still work. So these are the patients that we want to identify early because not all of them will develop Alzheimer's, but a small number may, may go on and develop Alzheimer's disease. And in some of these patients, when they did a scan, the PET scan, they found that these patients have amyloid deposition in the brain. So these are the patients that you want to target early. And also when a patient comes and tell you they have symptoms of what look like Alzheimer's disease, the disease process has already happened 10 to 20 years before. So this is what we call like a preclinical stage. You want to try to get these patients for this kind of treatment because you, you want to target them uh, early. Mm. So, you know, it's it's not just looking at what the medication itself does where we should be sort of uh, changing the way we think about um, getting them earlier, not um, brushing it off as forgetfulness or waiting until it, it progresses more, right? And um, Dr. Iswin talked to me about the other kinds of therapy that are important alongside medications. So alongside medication, um, we can try things like cognitive stimulative therapy. So cognitive stimulative therapy um, is where um, a person will attend, for example, um, like a daycare type of group um, and engage in a variety of activities like quizzes, exercises, 
So um, they are widely popular in many countries, um, has been shown um, to help um, reduce the rate of decline, as well as improve the overall well-being of a person with um, Alzheimer's dementia. And other treatment as well includes, you know, non. We're talking about non psycho you know, non pharmacological treatment. Can also include reminiscence therapy, occupational therapy. Um, so, um, you know, helping the person with Alzheimer's um, engage more in social based activities, um, social stimulation. You know, help them to speak to more people, socialize, uh, use their brain, brain training games. So those kind of things can really help. Uh, as part of the treatment um, for Alzheimer's uh, dementia. And I guess, you know, what Dr. Shirin is also uh, referring to is also about the behavioural issues that um, a person with dementia may display, um, either, you know, which can be at any stages, actually, mm. in, the, uh, in the disease. And this can include mood changes, uh, mood swings, aggressive behaviours, hallucinations, and there are psychiatric treatment, there are medication like antidepressants, antipsychotic treatments um, that you know, we can use in order to try and reduce the severity of the behaviour, um, as well as um, you know, assist the caregiver especially, as well as the patient with the distress that they're experiencing from their dementia. So I think this, you know, the take-home message that we wanted to stress is that if you have a loved one that you notice is experiencing dementia or early signs, is to get the help early and, and not dismiss it. Because I think right now, the, 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 the common perception that we face, I think both of us as practitioners in this industry, is that a lot of people think that there's no treatment. I, you can't do anything. I, you know, you know it's, it's aging. You know, there's no cure. There's no treatment. When in actual reality, even if you don't want the treatment in terms of the disease-modifying drugs or medication that slows down the cognitive decline, you know there may be treatment to address some of these issues that's causing, you know, a lot of stress. I think to the caregiver as well as the patient. And what is leading to that misconception? Do you think? Um, and what might be some? I really hesitate to use the word mistakes, but you know, uh, some practices that people are doing which would perhaps be accelerating the decline, you know, I and I'm just going to give some examples of what I've heard of um, trying to shelter the individual even more and, um, you know, trying to protect them and perhaps even stop them from doing certain activities. Um, would these be some of the practices that perhaps you'd like to um, uh, see people changing? Yes, I, I agree. Um, the, the, the practices tend to be, you know, the, the default position of most people that we see is of more of a protective nature. And a lot of the time, the reason I strongly advocate getting a diagnosis is it helps to consistently manage this person with cognitive impairment across various family members. So, you know, the common thing that we often find is that you have one family member behaving in a very harsh, in a very cruel way. And then you have another family member who's like inconsistent and say, yes, you can do anything that you want to do. So there's a lot of kind of, um, you know, discontent, disharmony, inconsistency in the way that you're looking after a person with dementia. And it's very important to have consistency, routine, um, to have familiarity in order to look after someone 
with dementia. Hence why, you know, we strongly advocate people to do, um, you know, to, to get the support, to get the diagnosis. And there's also things that, you know, we you can do in terms of talking to your practitioner, um, like how do you manage certain behaviours um, of people with dementia? Um, so I do this quite a lot in my clinics, especially, you know, I've got, I will sometimes have the whole family in one of my clinics, as many as I can fit them in and, and actually just almost do like a basic training session and say, look, this is how you deal with these kind of behaviours, but you've got to be quite consistent. And I think where the crisis and where the disharmony occurs is when there's inconsistency. And you mentioned as well about sheltering, you know, about there, there are things that we need to do to reduce risks. So understandably, you know, if someone I know has dementia and they're driving unsafely, I wouldn't really be giving them the car keys and says, bye, see you later. Um, but I may have to say, look, you can't drive anymore. And there are things that we do need to restrict in order to keep them safe. But sheltering them, not taking them out anymore because you're worried about them misbehaving, um, you know, stopping them from, you know, getting the social stimulation, um, denying them access to using mobile phones. Those kind of things are not really very helpful practices when in reality, we should be encouraging them to spend more time being socially active. And, and there's places like day center or, you know, for Muslims, they can take their relatives to mosque uh, and still say to the, you know, then still say to the person in charge and say, look, my mother has some memory difficulties. Can you keep a close eye on her? But I still want her to be included in all these social activities and still be part of society and not be locked away in a house somewhere with nothing to do. I have to agree with one is the one as well, you know, because, um, when there's a lot more psychiatric um, symptoms in Alzheimer's uh, patients, it becomes very, very much more challenging to, to manage. And a lot of times you can see the family members coming to clinic and um, you know, they, 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 they will tell you everything about the patient, but not how they are feeling. And um, they're very exhausted. And sometimes um, people with Alzheimer's, they are quite disinhibited. Uh, whatever they said and all that, it's important that family members don't take to heart what, what they say because they, they lost that inhibition. If they're going to be angry, they'll be very angry. If they're sensitive, they'll be very sensitive. And they will start having this delusion. So a lot of time, the family members will come and say, say to me, I don't know why my mom thinks I'm, I'm actually trying to plot something against her. Why does she think the neighbor is trying to steal her money? Maid so, stealing, that's the favorite yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> maid stealing or caregiver trying to abuse her until they actually had to put a camera to really you know, see whether the caregiver is actually abusing their mom or dad. And they try to keep their parents in the house because they're worried if the parents go out and they start accusing the neighbors this and that. So... I think it's really important to understand and not take to heart what they say. And they are also oversensitive. These patients with dementia and Alzheimer's, they are oversensitive. So it is important to, to let them know that you are not doing things uh, to be against them. You're trying to help them. And sometimes it's good to play along with, you know, what they think, depending on the situation. If they think that this is this is the morning I wake up, I need to go to work, but they haven't worked for a long time. It just play around. Why don't you have your breakfast first? Sit down, have your breakfast. And sooner they will forget that they're going to work and they'll do something else. It, it, it sort of avoid more conflict in the house. If they forget the time, put big clock in the in the house, you know, put calendars, remind them all these things so that they also don't get 
very stressed out. So this is very important, I think. Mm. And and you can get these kind of advice, um, you know, from various sources. Um, so there is Alzheimer's Disease Foundation Malaysia websites, uh, Dementia Society Pera. Um, and I'm, I actually found a very, very good uh, dementia training manual for caregivers, actually, on the World Health Organization website. It's called I Support for Dementia, the letter I Support. And it is an amazing booklet. I, you know, I should show you one day. <laughs> it's got a step-by-step sort of how do you manage everyday stuff um, with patients with dementia. And like Dr. Shirini mentioned, I mean, you know, we've got to remember that many children, you know, the people who are looking after, um, you know, patients with dementia are parents themselves. So they, they kind of, we call it a sandwich effect. So they're having to look after an elderly parent who sometimes behaves like a child but also their own children. So there is a lot of stress in between. And it's very important that they learn the techniques to avoid, as Dr. Shirini mentioned, crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how to have, um, you know, proper conversations, how to communicate with somebody with dementia. And Dr. Shirini mentioned about, um, you know, not, not necessarily agreeing with them every time, but I, I call it stepping into their world. You know, if their world is, I'm, you know, I'm 25 year old and I'm going to work this morning, then, you know, step into their world, see it from their point of view, you know, don't argue with them, don't say, no, you are 70 years old, you're not working anymore, yes. what are you going on about? Your mom and dad are not here Your mom anymore. and dad are not here, oh, that's the favourite. And then just say, look, you know, yes, you're going to work, why not we, you know, you use distraction, you use reassurance, why not we go and have breakfast, why not we see what's, you know, what's happening, why not you read your newspaper this morning, like you used to, you try and put in a routine for them, so that they know what's coming, but they also feel relaxed, and and most importantly, listened to, because people with dementia don't want to feel dismissed. Yes, and there will be mess in the house. Thinking about having a child in the house, there will be mess everywhere in the house, and and try not to be confrontational about it with them because you know that that's the last thing they want to have, and this will lead to more problems in the house. Yeah, will it potentially be dangerous if you sort of go along or um, not in trying not to dismiss their uh, what they're thinking in their world though? What if it um, it is a fear that they have, right, about somebody harming them. Would it increase their anxiety? How how do we mitigate those situations? So the way so it's, it's important to first of all acknowledge this is how they feel. Remember, I talked about stepping into their world, and and you know, giving them reassurance. Acknowledge feelings. You know that this is it's a very psychiatry thing to say. But it's about what is the feeling behind why they're saying so. So, for example, when when it's fear of someone entering the house, so it is anxiety, it's a insecurity that is actually the theme. They are scared, they're insecure. So you can mitigate it by, you know, making the, the steps needed to make them feel secure. You know, show them locks, show them that you've, if you've locked the house, you know, that you've done the steps needed to make the house secure, you've installed the lights. So there's usually a root cause to why they feel the way that they feel. In the same way, the, you know, the, the, the sort of issues about thinking their parents are still alive and asking for their deceased parents, you know, saying that their parents have passed away um, every time can be quite hurtful and, and sometimes very upsetting. So it's about understanding what is the feeling behind it. So the feeling is insecurity. 
I miss my mother, I'm lonely, I am sad, I'm scared. And rather than dismiss that, offer that, you know, offer yourself as the replacement, you know, for their deceased um, loved ones and say, I'm here, you're going to be okay, we're here for you, why don't we try and do something else, um, you know, use distraction. And, and, you know, if they say, I'm going to wait for my parents, then sit there and wait for them and say, okay, we'll wait for your parents. Let's talk about where, where you grow up. What do you like about growing up? Your school. So you can use distraction techniques like that, you know, offer love, offer warmth, things like that, rather than kind of dismiss them as, mm. um, as an individual who's kind of lost their marbles, basically, because mm. that is not helpful for a person with dementia. Um, and, and it only just creates a lot of stress for the caregiver. I mean, a lot of the times, whenever people come to my clinic, I do a lot more caregiver training than actually do much work with the person mm-hmm. with the dementia. Mm-hmm. Because I said, you know, 90% of the time, the stress is your approach, not the patient's behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's about them tailoring their approach to certain behaviors. We have to yeah. remember the, uh, Alzheimer's patient, they, they don't have their recent memories. So the, the older memories is going to be mu- becoming much, much stronger mm. to eventually that even that memory will soon fade out, mm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, we can see how... Um, you know, either way, uh, even if caregivers do learn to adopt the right approach, it, it still takes a lot of emotional resources um, out of them. So uh, we'll continue this conversation after a quick break to sort of look at where caregivers can turn to for that support, the training, as uh, Dr. Izwin mentioned. Dr. Shirini Bazir Ahmad, consultant neurologist, and Dr. Wan Izwin Wan Hassan, consultant psychiatrist, on the show with me today to discuss Alzheimer's disease. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shao-Yi. On the line with me today, consultant psychiatrist Dr. Wan Izwin Wan Hassan and consultant neurologist Dr. Sharini Bazir Ahmad. We've been having a, well, for me, it's been a very, very enlightening discussion about Alzheimer's disease, um, how to step into the world of somebody with Alzheimer's. And that's really um, what caregivers need to do to understand what individuals with Alzheimer's are going through in order to better care for them and better support them. Um, And this will eventually um, take such a toll on caregivers, both physically dealing with um, somebody with Alzheimer's, supporting them, helping them manage the condition, but also sort of knowing how to be this person that can be more supportive, right? Instead, and we've talked about how not to be confrontational, not to be accusatory, um, not to be overly protective and, and stop them from doing anything, not to be harsh and cruel as well. Um, Dr. Izwin, again, I think this is very much uh, from your perspective. Caregivers themselves, um, and, and I think the moment they receive that diagnosis of their loved one, it's probably, okay, action, go, mode, you know, what do I need to do? And what do we all need to do? Um, at what point do they deal with their own emotions? And I'm sure there's a lot of messy stuff going on in there. Um, yes, I, I completely agree with you, Shaoik. Um, because, I mean, a lot of the times we... we you know, the way that we describe um, how caregivers feel about receiving uh, dementia diagnosis is almost like bereavement. You know, there is a shock, there is a impending loss 
of the person and, and there is a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety. So caregivers will feel overwhelmed. Um, you know, some caregivers kind of expect it, especially the ones that brought their loved ones sort of quite late into the, um, you know, into the, for, for diagnosis. But for caregivers that, um, you know, where it's quite early and it's quite mild, it can be something that is quite, quite stressful for them. So I guess the emotions are overwhelming. And you're right, there are a lot of them go into go mode. Um, but I think one of the things that I always advocate to caregivers as part of, you know, their, their session, it's about getting educated. Psychoeducation is super duper important in looking after a person with dementia. Do not bury your head under the sand and just ignore it. It is not a problem that will just go away on its own. So there are various places that you can find resources. I've mentioned, I think, some of them earlier. Uh, Alzheimer's Disease Foundation Malaysia, Dementia Society Pera. Um, there are also Alzheimer's UK, Dementia.org, various websites that can provide you um, education and support. Um, and I think you know some of them actually run regular training online courses or face-to-face -face courses for caregivers. Also, most importantly, I think in terms of looking after themselves, caregivers, I'm very much a huge advocate of self-care for my caregivers. And, you know, and that includes saying to them, look, you know, you've got to look after yourself as a caregiver. This is an exhausting job. You will burn out quite quickly. Um, so the things that caregivers can do, for example, they need to learn to take regular breaks. Um, try and get someone to relieve you. You know, so try not to do this 24-7 um, share this out between family, friends. Um, if you have to hire sort of outside caregivers, um, paid caregivers, please do so uh, as much as you can afford. You know, try and, and get break yourself. Um, practice self-care and that includes making sure that you go on holidays yourself, go and watch a movie, have pamper sessions, things that help you feel better and look after yourself. Um, and, you know, the, it's about trying to find that bit of work-life balance as well. Talk to your workplace. Tell them that you're a caregiver. You know, there may be times that you have to leave work and it's an emergency. You can't be overburdened by work. And I think another thing I always advocate as well is to talk to someone regularly. It may not necessarily be a friend or a family if you feel that they won't listen to you and it's a struggle. So if you have, if you feel that you need to find a counsellor or you need to get a psychologist to support you, please do. You know, this is, this is, I always call it, this is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, it's going to be long, it's going to be hard, but support is out there. And the earlier that you look after yourself, the earlier that you practice self-care, the better your outcome will be. Dr. Sharini, earlier we mentioned that we need to be prepared as a society for this increasing burden uh, with our ageing population. So, so now we've looked at what individuals and caregivers are going through, right? What, what do we as a society, you know, policies, systems, structures, uh, what needs to come into place, do you think? Um, I think, as Dr. Wanizun has mentioned earlier, um, we need to have more support for the society. Uh, the issue here is that I'm not just talking about Alzheimer's disease. I'm, I'm talking about dementia in general. Um, a lot of time when the diagnosis is given, the challenge that I have is that uh, where do I refer these patients and their family for help and support? Where can they actually send their loved ones for um, a daycare, for example? 
Um, I know Dr. Wan Izwin has mentioned quite a few, but um, it's not easy to get a place sometimes with them. And not everyone can come to doctor's appointment and get family uh, support or neuropsychological support, you know. So I, I'm hoping that there is a system that, you know, we can um, create for patients and caregivers, the centres um, that we have like a centralised uh management on these centres where patient and caregivers can actually go to these centres and get support rather than being dispersed to this hospital and another hospital and 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 each state will have this kind of support for caregivers and also patient. And also in terms of uh, treatment, um, currently, of course, we, we, we do have guidelines and all that in terms of um, managing patients with Alzheimer's disease. But I think um, cost sometimes can be an issue. Uh, waiting, uh, the, the follow-up, you know, the clinic waiting can be quite long as well. And the clinic sessions that they have sometimes can be quite short. There's a lot to discuss sometimes. So, I mean, there are hospitals that have this one-stop centre, you know, memory clinic, uh, dementia clinic. But I'm hoping that more hospitals would be able to come up with this kind of setting where you bring your, your loved ones here, you get your memory assessed, and then you get your neurologist, psychiatrist, all done in one go. So there are hospitals in Malaysia that do that, but I'm hoping that there are more centres that can provide this to, to our patients. And then the other thing is about... Um, uh, in terms of tests that we can do on our patients. So we are hoping to have more advanced uh, tests that can detect early Alzheimer's disease or early cognitive impairment, but this is going to cost a lot. So I think um, awareness about Alzheimer's disease among um, our politicians, government is also important because we need some subsidy in terms of uh, trying to bring down this cost so that all our patients uh, who are eligible can go through this test and can afford to go through this test. Uh, perhaps as a, as a final message, um, we want to talk about having good quality of life um, for as much as as long as possible. We've talked a little bit about the importance of early detection, what to look out for. Uh, what about prevention or maybe maintaining good brain health for as long as possible? What can we do? I think a lot of the research right nowadays um, is more focused on brain health and you're right, early detection. So if, if you look at sort of where the Western countries are going towards now, they, they're trying to do more of what we call like brain health clinics rather than pick up people when they already have dementia. And this is about evaluating a person's risk of developing dementia in the future and actually taking the right steps uh, in, in order to prevent it. So that there are steps that we can take, um, and we can take it as young as you know, the age of 20s or 40s, because your brain starts to degenerate you know, right after you hit 40 years old. So you've got to remember you've got to take the steps now, and that includes living a healthy lifestyle. Um, and Dr. Shrini mentioned earlier before about in regular exercise, um, managing your hypertension, your risk factors, including your diabetes, obesity, um, ensuring that you have an appropriate you know, and a good balanced diet. You know, try to avoid too much rich sugary food, uh, health, more healthy vegetables. Um, you know, there's a lot of research, isn't it, about sort of oily fish being quite good uh, in terms of Mediterranean diet. 
being quite good in terms of uh, reducing the risk of developing dementia. Um, and most importantly, my take-home message is keep yourself socially stimulated. I think a lot of people, when they retire or you know, they reach a certain age, they just want to sit at home and do very little. And, and you know, that that actually, you know, the, 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 the sort of um, adage, lose it, use it or lose it, is actually true. That the more you keep yourself socially stimulated, even after your retirement, you know, the better your brain function will be. So I do advocate my patients, not just for dementia, but also for mood, to prevent mood and anxiety disorders, which I see quite a lot in the geriatric population is to keep yourself busy go and you know we're over most of the COVID pandemic so there's no excuse now so I do advocate go and meet your friends go for a coffee go for a drink go and play mahjong go and do tai chi you know go to the mosque do a lot of things um, and some of them I even say look join an NGO do a voluntary organization you know do some work where you go out and and you socialize and there's also places that offer training um, as well for the uh, older adults population. They can join the University of Third Age. And this is about making sure that you can still get educated. You learn to use a smartphone, learn to you know code if you have to at that age, <laughs> if, if you feel it's necessary, or a new language. These are the things that actually helps to develop all the new nerve brain cells, neurons stimulated. And this is helping to protect you from getting dementia in the future. So, you know, it, it is it is best to try and do this early rather than kind of later on. That's, I guess, my take-home message. Yeah, I think uh, I, all that Dr. Wanizwin have said, um, you know, keep your brain active, I suppose, um, as, as long as possible. Okay, so if you can work as long as you can, just keep working, keep your brain active, learn new skills, learn new hobbies. There is a more... Um, uh, recent evidence about uh, the lack of uh, vitamin D that can actually lead to Alzheimer's disease. So I think this is quite a hot topic people are talking about when it comes to supplements. So this is reducing risk, right? We're talking still about reducing risk. So in terms of uh, vitamin D deficiencies, the evidence is still not strong, but there is possibly a link of uh, reduced uh, vitamin D levels and um, also um, uh, leading to uh, Alzheimer's disease, but the evidence is still soft at the moment. And um, how about other supplements? Um, at the moment, a lot of time my patients come to clinic, apart from all the medications that myself and Dr. One has given, they will bring a big plastic bag about all these supplements. Um, so vitamin Bs, folate, um, CoQ10, um, tocotrienol, all these vitamins are still not proven yet to actually prevent your risk of um, dementia. So um, I hope this answers some questions uh, that we all normally get in clinic. Yeah, But it all comes back to what you said earlier, right? If you're eating a good balanced diet, if you're taking good care of yourself, yes. you're going outdoors and doing Tai Chi, you're getting your vitamin D, right? Yeah, get your vitamin D from there, exercise. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I think it's perhaps what sounds very pedestrian that people don't want to, don't want to uh, believe in. But hey, it's right there. It's all the stuff. Our grandmothers and our moms used to tell us. Um, thank you so much. Uh, there's been so much we've discussed. Uh, this is definitely something you want to revisit in our podcast. And we'll also put the link for the training and support manual. That's I Support for Dementia in our podcast as well. Dr. Sharini Bazir Ahmad, consultant neurologist. And Dr. Wan Izwin Wan Hassan, consultant psychiatrist. 
is talking to me today about Alzheimer's disease right here on Health and Living BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.